Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to The Notebook, everybody. We're November 20th, and I'm Marc-Antoine Godin with Arpin Basu. Arpin, you must remember Dennis Green, former Arizona Cardinals head coach, who went on mm-hmm. a famous rant on uh well that we could see on youtube we can easily find it on youtube and his line was they were exactly who we thought they were talking about their opponents well do we know exactly who are the montreal canadians (laughs) yeah who are these guys yeah this is uh i i think this is actually you know i think this is a clearer question to maybe us or fans or outside observers than it is to the actual Canadians themselves. And I think we're seeing that play out sort of in real time. You know, it was pretty extraordinary for me to see um, Martin St. Louis call his team soft in that game against Boston on Saturday, which is not inaccurate by any stretch is actually quite on point. Uh, But, you know, to me, I, I, I look at, Sort of some of the comments and some of the some of the disappointment coming from the Canadians with their play of late as being exactly that lack of awareness of who they are and where they should be and where they find themselves in their developmental arc. Um, and I, I have a hard in the time sense that in the sense that they miss their they 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 mistake their ambitions for their self evaluations. A little bit, yeah. I mean, it's and there's a lot to kind of unpack here. You know, when we're we're sort of embarking on a conversation like, who are these guys? Um, I think that answer is unclear right now. It's it's and you know, Marte said we were mentioning after the game. Well, we've had a lot of tough teams on our schedule lately. Well. That's how the NHL works, right? I mean, you're supposed to you, you have games against difficult teams, and if you're a good team, then uh, that doesn't matter as much. And if you're a team like the Canadians, which is not a good team, how bad a team they are, I think, is up for debate. But they're not one of the upper echelon. They're not a top tier team in the league. No, no one would argue with that, except for maybe the Canadians themselves. But you know, it, it's these we're seeing things of late that teams in the position the Canadians find themselves in go through quite regularly and shouldn't be a cause for alarm. But Marte St. Louis in particular, and even some of the players, I think seem a little alarmed by it, which I guess is good because you don't want them to just accept like, oh, we're bad, so this is fine. No one wants that. But it's it's a shift, I think, from the way Marte 
sort of managed this team last year, knowing as well as he did that even his own management team wanted the team to lose as much as possible to this year where Kent Hughes came out quite bluntly at the end of last season, again at the beginning of this season, saying that standard has changed. Uh, that word standard is getting tossed around a lot. So what is the Canadian standard? Is it fair to make the two first games against Vegas and Boston uh, their standard? Or is there standard somewhere closer to the second game against Vegas and Boston, which we just saw um, their last two games? Yeah, well, a standard. Standard means something that's – it becomes a norm at some point. It becomes this is where we're at. Yeah. And they take it to mean sometimes our standard is we're establishing what we're capable of doing. Right. But there's a big difference of establishing what you're capable of doing and then doing it on a regular basis. And I think that there are some occasions where when they bring their A game, you say, oh, okay, that's that's who they can be. That's not necessarily uh -huh. who they are. That's not necessarily who they are yet. But that's certainly what they can be. And after that, it's a matter of consistency and it's clearly not there. And it's funny because today after practice, we heard Martin Saint-Louis say, oh, you know, it's uh, what he was asked to identify what was going wrong, basically. He mentioned a couple of things, you know, risk management. He mentioned the, the lack of forecheck against Boston. But he also mm -hmm. said, you know, sometimes it feels like you're, you're wanting, you try to patch something And then something else would start leaking. And yeah. Mac Matheson echoed exactly the same thing. So it's not just one fire to extinguish. There's not one issue in particular that needs to be tackled. And when you feel like there's many things all at once that are contributing to you not performing, uh, that's when you put yourself in a position where there can be a really a string of losses. This team has already lost four in a row. They're embarking on a trip to California that's never been very hospitable to them. So mm -hmm. we're looking at a team that could take a serious dip in the coming days if they don't find their mojo back. Uh, they're already struggling. The, uh, Marty was answering to one of your questions saying that they're already looking uh, like they were, they're struggling with their mental toughness a little bit. Well, if they yeah. don't address that fast... Uh, Maybe, except for the potential game against San Jose, who's, who's got, you know, three wins only so far this season. Uh, th All this three is, of them in regulation, though. Yeah, more than the Canadians. Yeah, More than so, the Canadians, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a trip that could really put them in the red because we've seen them, you know, flirting with a line that was slightly above 500 for a while with, with great goaltending and, and, you know, some some – Uh, favorable um, P, uh, PDO. But uh, when you look at the way it's starting now, now they're 25th in the league. And it, it could go worse than that as, as, as the games go by. So I, I, as much as we like to hear them say, oh, you know, it's a good time to go on the road, get together, you know, and, and bond and whatnot on the ice concretely, uh, it could be a long trip. Yeah, and You know, it's always a good time to go on the road. I've never heard a player say, man, it really sucks that we're going on the road right now. Like, <laughs> players get asked this all the time. Is this a good time for your team to go on the road? I, just once I want to hear a player say, no. you know what? No, it's not. This is, the timing is terrible. 
So, of course, it's a good time to go on the road. The team is struggling, spend some time together, bonding. I think the Canadian's rookie dinner is planned uh, in Los Angeles. Um, they're going to be gone for 10 days. They're going to spend a lot of time together. And, of course, the timing's perfect. It's always perfect. But, um, you know, I thought, you know, the, the question that Marty was answering when he questioned his, his team's well, – he, he wondered about his team's mental toughness or saying that it was being challenged right yeah. now – one thing about mental toughness is that it has nothing to do with skill or ability or anything other than the makeup of the players themselves and, and, and how they form a cohesive unit and how they can, uh, how it's a part of, it's a part of toughness. It's a part of team toughness, being mentally tough, not allowing a single goal against to deflate you. Um, so the question that I asked on that was, you know, how we mentioned that they were had some difficult, teams on their schedule of late if he had realized early in the season when he was off the team was off to a good start that they had gotten a very favorable schedule mm -hmm. and that that was partly fueling the good start and he said he did even though if you go back to what he said at the time i don't think there was much evidence of him acknowledging the 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 favorable start other than the fact that they were they were playing you know i think they played four games in the first two weeks of the season um but he said, you know, I kind of knew that the schedule was going to get tough. And earlier in that, in, in his media veil after, after practice Monday, he mentioned how, you know, you get judged on when times are tough, not when times are good. And, and so the Canadians are being judged right now. And I think it goes beyond where they are in their development arc. It goes beyond what their own expectations for them should be. I mean, the mental toughness part is something that you would like to see shine through uh from some of the core guys you know i mean and and, yeah. and so you know marty what marty did in boston i thought was really interesting you know aside from calling the team soft after the game which is you know defcon one i guess it would be or five i forget what direction that goes in but anyhow it's 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 in coach speak that's that's used uh, sparingly. Let's say yeah. it's not something you want it's to a call your it's team. It's a bullet. It's a bullet that that it's he's bullet. firing. Yes, yeah. and he made reference earlier this season to, um, which I think you asked him about today was you know going into the room between periods um, against Winnipeg was it or Columbus? Winnipeg. 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 Yeah, and and really laying into his team after what was an awful first period. Uh, and how he can only do that a certain number of times. Well, calling your team soft is something that coaches are pretty loath to do and don't. And he just, he didn't just, he wasn't asked, do you think your team played soft tonight? He just volunteered it on his own in his opening comments. It's kind of funny how it came out of him. He's like, yeah, Boston played really well tonight. And, you know, we did what I, oh, and also I, I found we were soft. <laughs> it's just <laughs> kind of like, he just kind of threw it in. Yeah. And you're like, whoa, okay, that's, that's a bit of a bomb from, from Martin. And, but when he, when he brings up the mental toughness and how it's challenging them right now, you know, that's an area where even a bad team can be mentally tough. You know, I mean, even if you're bad, especially when you're bad, actually, is when you need to display that sort of mental toughness. And this is something that's within their control. And it's something that kind of speaks to sort of the makeup of their core, I think. Yeah. And if, you know, if those guys, are unable to get through this relatively minor adversity. I mean, listen, expectations externally are low, are still low on this team. No one's really flipping out over their record 
I mean, if you asked anyone, where are they at now? You said they were 25th in the league overall. Yeah. They're last in their division. They're pretty much, pretty much where people expected them to be. I mean, listen, I, you know, the, the, if the draft were, if the draft lottery were held today, they'd be, you know, they'd have the eighth best odds. Is that right? Two, four, six. Yeah. Eighth best odds. Um, prior to the season, you know, we were saying they might not be bad enough for a top five pick, but they'll probably be somewhere in the top 10 hovering around maybe early teens, you know, early somewhere teens, in this, yeah. somewhere early in this teens. range, which they're still, you know, that they're, they're going through a tough stretch here. I mean, I think they're, they are going to have a bounce back stretch at some point where they start winning some games. There's a lot of the Cole Caulfield's not scoring goals. Josh Anderson famously has not scored a single goal. There's a lot of things going wrong and the Canadians are, are where they are despite those things. And so now those things are coming to the forefront. I was looking at Cole Caulfield's shooting percentage on the power play today. It's at 2.3%. Yeah. He was at 12.5 last year um, at 11.1, I think the year before. So there's some there's, be a regression to the norm at some point. There will be at sure. some point that uh, Josh Anderson scores 23 to 27 goals just about every year. I mean, his, his, his goal totals at the end of the season, if you look at his career, have been remarkably consistent. They're pretty much – you can bank on X number of goals from that guy. So there's going to be a regression there. And they'll start to win some games. But I hope – to me, I think the lesson for, for at least Martin St. Louis and not really, the, not really his players is to keep any hot streak or cold streak – in perspective of who they are. And and maybe this is creating a greater realization to Martin that that this is who they are and this these things are gonna happen. You're gonna you're gonna go in these stretches where your team's playing poorly, where they're springing leaks all over the place and you're playing whack-a-mole trying to trying to fix them. It's it's the reality of the Canadians right now. And and their their early start to the season, based on what Martin himself admitted was a favorable schedule, was not a clear or accurate snapshot of what this team is. Well, it's interesting you bring up Caulfield and Anderson as guys who obviously have been going through a rough patch and, and a cold streak offensively because they're part of the core. Anderson, if only because of his age, he's supposed to be in one of the few players on his team who's meant to be in his prime right now. Uh, mm -hmm. probably the Mike Matheson's the other one. Uh, but when, when those two guys cannot find the, uh, the, the back of the net after that, it's, it's easy to make a connection between that sort of, uh, cold spell and a team that struggles, uh, you know, to overcome adversity or that's, uh, battling it, uh, mentally, you know, or, and, and lacks that mental toughness, but it goes also, it affects also, Secondary players, after the game in Boston, uh, Jonathan Kovacevic uh, said, you know, it's not that we're, we were facing the Bruins and we were going into a hostile environment and whatnot that, that made us play like that. But when you start off your game and, and you know, you can see right from the get-go that the team as a whole is not on his A game, uh, yeah. then the first few mistakes added to the fact that you're in a hostile environment makes it that much more difficult to hold on to your game. And that's where the emotions can take over. And he said, personally, I know that they did take over 
uh, and they, they got the best of me. He ended up having six minutes of penalties. Obviously, there was a double minor in the lot, plus another penalty at the other, uh, at some other point in the game. But even for a guy like Kovacevic, it's just that there are situations that become overwhelming. And you got to mm. wonder if, if Anderson is struggling, is in his own head right now, if Caulfield is in his own head right now, are there enough players to support Suzuki Uh, in and I would add Brendan Gallagher to that in the leadership aspect to to make sure that there is and I hate to whenever there's a team that goes on a, a, a losing streak I hear so many pundits talk about the lack of leadership and, and I don't want to do that because I think that mm. it's an it's an easy way out but it's not the losing streak that leads me there it's more the question of mental toughness say You have to have guys that were, are going to be able to steer the, the group back together and say, we're, we're going to overcome this. It can come from the coach, it can come from the captain, but it can come from, from everybody. And that comes, wow. maybe it's a byproduct of having so many guys that are just young, up-and-coming players that are stitched to another group of guys that are older or trying guys that are trying to prove themselves either because of age or because of, of you know uh, injury history but you have to find a way to connect those two groups together and make a coherent whole out of this and when we wonder when we ask ourselves who are these guys i think that trying to accomplish something with the younger guys and trying to accomplish something with the older guys makes a connection that is not always cohesive. I'm not sure if that's... If well, I think that's... Sense, yeah, it wasn't all that cohesive, but I do, I do understand what you're talking about. Is no, that, not me. I'm, but me and the it, team. But if, no, you, if you think no, that my argument is not I'm cohesive, just, I'm, just, I'm, I'm all right just with joking. that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just saying... No, I do understand what you're saying. And it, 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 I think that comes down to... That is the crux of the question, right? I, often when you think of leadership in, in bad times, I think back to, to Max Pacioretty and Anaheim kind of oh. falling on his sword as captain, that classic rant of how am I supposed to tell guys what to do when I'm the worst player on the ice and all this stuff. Yeah. And he's, he was right in the sense that was, a, that was a very self-aware thing. You know, he's like, listen, it's, I'm, I'm, I can hardly go up to someone and say, Hey, you're not pulling your weight when I am the biggest culprit of not pulling my weight. I can't do that. And it, there's definite truth to that. I mean, you talk like, listen, we talked to Sean Monaghan after practice today. That's not a guy who's brimming, brimming with confidence in his game right now especially after the strong start that he had with his line uh, of late, it hasn't gone well. And frankly, his game in Boston was probably the worst game he's played in a Canadian's uniform. I mean, the numbers are staggering. Uh, yeah. Shot attempts at five on five with Sean Monaghan on the ice were 22 to two for Boston, 16, nothing unblocked shot attempts. He was on the ice for zero expected goals. Zero. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just like, it's, it's, So, and you could see it in his face talking after practice today. You know, I mean, he's like, listen, I, and, and at one point he said, I still think we're a good team. We're capable of X, Y, Z based on these games that we played in the past, but he's not in a position as a leader on the team, as a veteran to go up to someone and be like, Hey, you should be doing this, this, this when he's getting lit up right now. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's night and day from where he started the season. So there's some truth to that. Patch already read from several years ago. Um, that's just a reality in, in, a, in a dressing room. You know, leadership starts with yourself and how you play. It starts by leading by example. 
And once you do that, then maybe you can vocally go to some of these younger guys and be like, Hey, you know, this, you need to do this or you need to, you know, start to try and help others, but you can't do that until you've helped yourself. And so when you have a lot of the older guys kind of fighting it a little bit right now, you know, Tanner Pearson has been a less effective player than he was earlier in the season, finds himself on the fourth line Saturday. Uh, even, I mean, I, I would say Brennan Gallagher's play hasn't actually dipped all that much, but definitely had a spell with those bad penalties and, and, and what have you. And so he's there for- are. He's minus 13 in his last eight games. So that's yeah. something that, that, you know, tells, tells a part of the story. But he's, yeah. he's, he was happy enough about this, his, his play so far this season to say, well, you know, I'm back to, I'm more comfortable acting as a leader for the exact reason that you brought up because he feels more comfortable with his game. He feels like he's contributing. Hence, he can go to other players and, you know, try to ignite something and, right. and share ideas and, and use his leadership. When you're, when you're searching for, for yourself and you're, you're, you know, you're deep in a hole or you're frustrated or and things are not working well for you, you mm-hmm. have to fix yourself before you can think of fixing others. Exactly. And, and I mean, good on Gallagher, if that's how he feels. And, and I don't know if, you know, you know plus minus is, is an imperfect stat, of course, Um, I think in Gallagher's case, you know, him bringing the quality he has of dragging the team into the fight, I think it's still there. You know, I mean, we've seen him be a lot more combative. He's, he's in the the blue paint the way he used to be in his prime years. His shot generation numbers are very strong. Um, it's, you know, this is definitely a a new and improved Brennan Gallagher from the, the banged up tape together version we saw the last couple of years. Um, but, you know, who's really playing well right now on the team? I mean... It's a good question. Nick That's Suzuki, a- kind of? Yeah. Yeah, Gallagher. he's playing well. He's playing well. I mean, I think I still think Gouli's playing well, even though he's had a yeah. couple of maybe maybe more difficult games, but he's been one of the more consistent players. Matheson's been a roller coaster all season. Uh, Kovacevic, frankly, I mean, he had a tough one on Saturday, but otherwise has been pretty good for what he is. You know, I mean, I think there's, there's a pretty low ceiling on Kovacet. I think, you know, he's, he's, he's playing close to it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's about it. You know I mean? And, and maybe Baron and, to a little bit. Maybe Baron. Yeah. Baron too. Yeah. Not, not even a little bit. I think he's been, he's settling into something pretty interesting, I think for the Canadians, but that's, that's it. So yeah. if those are, if that's your subset of players who can, Oh, and the goalies, the goalies. (laughs) Well, yeah, the goalies, but the goalies are a whole separate matter. They're dealing with their own stuff on their own. That's they're 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 a crowded bunch, and they're dealing with their own things. But if the subset of players who can kind of lift the team out because they're playing well is that Suzuki, Gouli, Baron, maybe Gallagher, not a whole lot else. you know, that's, 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 an, I mean, yes, Suzuki's the captain. And so I think he does do that. He does talk to guys and, 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 and try to help them out. But I mean, that's, that's a small subset of players on this team. And it doesn't include some of the more veteran guys, you know, so it's, um, and there's one guy that, you know, we, we, we brought him up earlier talking about the show. We didn't really decide to talk about him, but, but Alex Newhook, I think is an interesting sort of, 
case study for for where this team is at. Uh, I spoke to him last week because it just dawned on me that so for the first time in his life, really, he's changing organizations. Um, yeah. You don't really do that in minor hockey generally. Uh, and he hadn't done that until now. And so not only do you have the change of moving to a new city, learning about new teammates, I think the only guy he knew really was Justin Barron, more or less, um, uh, or maybe Gooley too from that World Junior team. But anyhow, didn't know a lot of guys on the team. Comes in, starts on the wing, uh, quickly has to shift over to center after Kirby Dock is lost after the second game of the season. Um goes back to the wing, is moving lines. It's just kind of been a constant state of flux in terms of the new hooks runway to adapt to a new team. Um, and on top of all that, he's got to learn how to play with Nick Suzuki. And it's, it's a challenge. <laughs> like, it's like, it's honestly like he, he didn't put it this way. Like he basically said, it's it's really you really have to be aware that he's always looking to make an offensive play. He's not playing simple hockey, so you have to be aware of that. You have to know, you have to expect that he's going to try to make an offensive play, anticipate what that play is, and be put yourself in a position to take advantage of that offensive play. And even Suzuki kind of admitted last week that you know this it's it's a work in progress between those two. They, they they're talking a lot on the bench between shifts. They talk a lot in the room between periods. It's it's an ongoing process, and I remembered. I think you were on that trip, right? I, that was the trip during the trip out west, where I kind of jokingly asked Nick, like, "Why are you so difficult to play with?" Yeah, he yeah. kind of laughed. <laughs> he kind of laughed because I originally asked, you know, the difficulty of finding someone to complete his line with Kim and Cole Caulfield, and then quickly followed with that. And then when Nick realized it was a joke, because I don't think at first I don't think he realized it was a joke. And he looked kind of like he looked kind of sideways at me, and then he and then he realized it was a joke, and then and he laughed. But well, it's like Sidney Crosby. It was, it, it's been hard for for the Penguins to find the proper line mates for him. You know, to, in his career, in Canada, Pascal Dupuis, uh, Chris Kunitz, and Jake Gunzel. You know, yeah. those three guys. But it's been over a what, over fifteen year career. It's uh, it hasn't been easy for trying to right and, fit. And, so. It's it's listen. We're not we're not comparing Nick Suzuki to Sidney Crosby by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a similar dilemma, if you will, uh, in the sense that you know Sidney Crosby sees the game in a way that only he does. Nick Suzuki is not at that level, but he does have a very unique way of seeing the game of hockey and how it's played and and how to take advantage of certain offensive situations. And, and Newhook was saying that. You know, in his time in Colorado, he never he hadn't really played with guys like that. Occasionally, he did. You know, he found himself on a line with Nate McKinnon from time to time, but was really kind of seen as as you know the ultimate, the eventual replacement for Nazem Kadri when he left, and it didn't really work out that way. But he was uh, he turned into more of a depth player, so he played a more simple game. And if you watch Newhook's games in Colorado last year, a lot of dump and chase, a lot of go establish the forecheck, get the puck back, cycle it. Very meat and potatoes, simple kind of hockey. And that's not what you play with Nick Suzuki. And so it's, uh, you know, I, I think he's a guy that would be fair to say the Canadians expected more from, but I think there's some justifiable reasoning for how slowly it's going in terms of his production and, and taking advantage of the added opportunities he's getting in Montreal. But, um, 
you know, early returns almost a quarter of the season, a quarter of the way through the season, I think it'd be fair for the Canadians to expect more from him as well. Eventually, I just it's just not clear what what path that's going to take. Yeah, well, there, I might have I might be old fashioned in that sense, but I feel like on every line there should be a guy who's who's willing to go to the net and be that net front presence, and you know that it's going to be his job. You going, you know, who's going to be a, a puck retriever, and once it's established that one, when there's there's a setup in the offensive zone that's going to go in front of the net, and it's been very difficult for Suzuki and Caulfield to find that that third person. And I'm not sure if Newhook is that kind of guy either because he doesn't strike me as he's, – he's a guy who likes to carry the puck, uses his speed to uh, – To, uh, you know, to good use, and he's not necessarily the guy who's going to battle the most one-on-one uh, -on -one or, or fight for space uh, on a regular basis. So it's I'm, he did I'm not actually sure do that a fit. lot. He did actually do that a lot in Colorado, though, and, and mm -hmm. it struck me like watching the video from him in Colorado last season. It did strike me. I was like, why are they asking Alex Newhook to do that? Like that mm -hmm. just doesn't seem like a good use of his skill set. Uh, but he was pretty effective at it. Honestly, if you if you go back and, and look at his games last year in Colorado, like he got a lot of his goals in that area, kind of fighting for position with bigger defensemen. But he's he's a strong guy. Like he's very he's similar to Suzuki in the sense that they're not the tallest guys, but they're they have a low center of gravity and they have a, a strong core uh, yeah. that allows them to battle and 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 to not be physically overwhelmed. And so. That is something he did, but I agree with you that he's not the ideal. Like I thought, that's why I thought Raphael Harvey Pinard would be a great fit with them because he does that very well. Yeah, um, that didn't work out, and so it's. I think that's always been the theory for Marty with Josh Anderson. Why he always thinks Josh Anderson would be a good fit on that line because he could be that guy that you're talking about. And the fact is, he's not that guy, you know, and has never been that guy. And he, you know, he goes to the net on the rush, but not much of a net front presence once you're set up in the offensive zone. He's he, he's always in movement and tries to find soft areas. Exactly what Caulfield does, which is, I think, why that that line doesn't work. Uh, but I would agree with you that having a player who who does that consistently and knows, like, that's to me, that's Harvey Pinard. It's really the best fit for that line if it was given some runway and if Caulfield and Suzuki are to stay together, probably Harvey Pinard, but it's been mm -hmm. tough for him this season. And another guy who's probably fighting confidence, actually not probably is definitely fighting confidence issues. Um, it's currently injured, obviously. So he's not an option right now, but it's, it seems to be the type of guy who could, who could fill that role best among the people that they have available to them. But Yeah, maybe they just don't have that guy right now. Well, re returning to New Hook for for a moment, I mean, there's his own numbers. The fact that he has not produced a lot, but when he's been asked to play center, he's been flanked by guys who've been struggling offensively too. And mm -hmm. you mentioned Anderson, uh, you know, Slavkovsky, uh, guys like that. So it's there's a collection. Who are these guys? Right now, they're a collection of guys that are trying to figure themselves out, and yeah, it's it's hard exactly. to it's hard to be a team when you guys are are just are searching for their own identity and and trying to find you know trying to find their game, and it's uh, it, it's they're really an island of misfit toys, completely, 
Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. That, that's what it is, and it's yeah. so it's going to be a process. We could ask that question in three months from now, well, we might come up with a very different answer. But if mm -hmm. you take a snapshot of where the team is right now, it's it, there's a lot of uh, puzzling faces, puzzled faces on that in that locker room right now. Well, I think, it's, and also in the coach's office, you know, I mean. It, the wholesale changes made to the forward lines on Saturday, you know, our last episode was spent talking about how Marty needed to make some changes. <laughs> then he went ahead and did that. So yeah. thanks for listening to the podcast, Marty. We appreciate it. But obviously he had, that had nothing to do with it, but it, it, he did go full on, broke up the Monaghan line, brought Suzuki and Caulfield back together, did all sorts of things, you know, didn't look all that enthused, with the result of those changes, obviously, no. uh, after the game on Saturday, that's quite obvious. It didn't even last the whole game. I mean, Monaghan swapped Monaghan and Dvorak at some point during the game. Um, but it's, you know, it's just been an ongoing issue for this coaching staff to find forward combinations that work. And it's not as if they've been decimated by injury. Listen, I, Kirby Doc is obviously a pivotal critical piece that they lost very early in the season. And that's a, a fair mitigating factor, but it's one injury, you know, and it's not a superstar level player. Yes. On, in the Canadians ecosystem, very, very important forward, but you should be able to recover from an injury to Kirby doc with the depth of, with the depth of talent you had at forward when, you know, with a mix of Monaghan, Newhook and Dvorak, you should find a solution. You should. And so I think that that's – it's on the coaching staff to make this group bigger than the sum of its parts, you know, to make them not an island of misfit toys, to make them something, as you were mentioning earlier, a more cohesive um, a more cohesive group. And they haven't been able to find the right combinations. Now, are they dealing with the the best possible pool of players? No, of course not. Uh, but I do think that that's that's a challenge facing this coaching staff. Not only do they have to develop the mental toughness that Marty was talking about, um, this coming from a player who was the epitome of mental toughness. Like, I mean, he just really – he mental toughed his way into the Hall of Fame. I mean, literally his – probably his number one attribute was his mental toughness. But that's not something you can really teach, right? That's, 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 that's internal. Um, what he can do – is continue working on the development of his young players. And I think that's when you say, when we ask the question, who are we? I think, I think the answer for Marty has to be, we are a team in development. We are still in the development phase. Let's not get bogged down with the results. Let's continue making decisions that are development-based and not results-based would be an important answer to that. But I think he can help that development and the results by coming up with some configuration of this forward group that makes some sense. And they just, they haven't seemed to be able, been able to do that a quarter, almost a quarter of the way through the season. No. And, you know, some moves, you know, uh, putting Yesu Lonen uh, on the second line against Boston was maybe a way to say, well, here's your chance. Or we recognize the fact that in a limited role, you've been doing a good job. So we'll mm -hmm. go, We'll go with with merit, uh, so that could be a development thing. But there's 
Marty has used on a few occasions, I won't call it necessarily a cop-out, but his argument at least was to say, well, winning is part of development. So it's it's never been completely dissociated between oh, he's development. Not, he's not wrong. So development and results are are not necessarily two goals that are that cannot go hand in hand, but it's it's a question that he himself as a coach, in terms of the priorities for his team, he must ask himself. And the management too. I mean, when they look at this, say, are, are they going to look at making it a shake up and say, okay, we're going to do something to try to win more games? Mm -hmm. Or are we going to refocus to the fact that th we need absolutely our younger players, the, the, the under 23 or under 24 guys, to take a step forward and be better? What, what, what is it that we can do to make sure that Newhook takes a step forward, that Barron takes a step forward, that Caulfield finds his groove, and the rest might not be as important. It's it's a very difficult question to ask, but I think that the or, or to answer actually, it's easy to ask, but it's tough to answer. Um, but the, 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 this team is at a philosophical crossroads. It's say we mm -hmm. wanted to win more, but we might not have the tools when we compare it. Look, we. We were talking early in the season about standings, about the fact that, yeah, the Canadians were deemed to be, to finish last, were labeled as uh, finishing last in, in their division, but there would be other teams, other rebuilding teams that were ready to make a real step forward. Everybody had the Buffalo Sabres on, uh, on the tip of their tongue. Well, the Buffalo mm -hmm. Sabres are still struggling. And when you look at the Canadians and say, okay, well, they could take a step forward and they could take another step forward next year. But it's a slow process to really climb up the ladder and climb up the standings from one year to the next. And when you take a team like the New Jersey Devils, who was able to do that within a span of two years, going from a bottom team to a team that's really, really competitive, to me, it seems like it, they're, they're more the exception than the rule. More often than not, the young teams will, will fight for a long time before establishing themselves if they ever do, because some of them will just entirely miss the boat. So there's a need for a lot of patience. But if I'm in the room with those players and I'm Martin Saint-Louis, I'm thinking, okay, patience is one thing, but I can feel around this, in this locker room, the impatience to win and to feel good mm -hmm. about ourselves. And that might taint his decisions too. Yeah. And that's, and you know what? I think that's important. It's important. That, and we've we've talked to Marty about this, and it's it's you can't you can't tell a veteran NHL player that you're sitting on the bench and this guy's going over the boards, even though he's fighting it and even though he's struggling, because we need to develop him. What does that do for the? What does the veteran player care about that? I mean, that's that's definitely a balance that needs to be struck, and I think he is striking that. Listen, it's not as if. You know, someone could could argue maybe that Uri Slavkovsky deserved to sit at some point and didn't. Um, it definitely could have been an option used, but I, I think everyone in the Canadians' room sees the potential and the talent that he has, and how how when he's playing at his best, he actually does help them win, whether he gets points or not. So I think that's a just that's a defensible decision to not scratch him. Um, but it's you know, I mean. I think we see it late in games where the Canadians are, you know, verging on 
a win or they're protecting a lead or they're tied or whatever, like when crunch time hits, you know, he'll sit certain guys. And there, was, there were times this season when he sat Slavkovsky for a couple of shifts in the third period in, in sort of critical situations. And I would argue that you shouldn't do that, that he needs to be in those critical situations. He needs to learn from them. And if you, you lose the result because of that, then so be it. Then, then it's a teaching opportunity. And then you have, you have, you have a chance to teach or, you know, if he sits, uh, Yulonen as a guy, as an example, you know, or Caulfield in certain sort of defensive situations, like it's, it's, that's where he has to kind of balance things out. And that's where it's, it's somewhat difficult to do sometimes. You, 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 these players are, are in a fight. They're trying to win a game. How good. Uri Slavkovsky is two years from now might not matter to a guy like Tanner Pearson who could be long gone by then or Sean Monahan who could be long gone by then, you know? So it's, yeah, it's always, and, and when you mentioned management, you know, it's clear the Canadian, Canadian's management would want them to be more competitive. Uh, but if things turn out that the Canadians are a bit more competitive than last season, but they still wind up with a pretty good draft pick, I'm not sure. I'm not sure management would consider that a total failure. You know, I mean, it's, there's really. I don't think management's going to go out and fix this for the Canadian. Like, if they if they find an inability to win games, they're not going to go out and spend future assets on someone to bring someone in to help them win games. That's for. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty convinced. I can be. I can be proven wrong. If things go really off the rails, maybe they do that. I doubt things will go that far off the rails, but because I, I just don't see them investing more in this team uh, at this juncture. You know, it, it's, I think would Canadians management get, if they were to be given truth serum and asked, you know, who are you? Uh, they would say we're a team that's not there yet. We're a team that, that, that needs more work. We're a team that needs development. We're a team that needs more talent. We're a team that needs a lot of things that we don't have yet. So, this season, I think, in their eyes, is important to building a certain culture and not allowing the the culture of of let's call it what it is of tanking last season to some extent, where management quite openly was not opposed to them losing games and was not opposed to having a higher draft pick. They don't want that stench to stick to this team because you mentioned Buffalo, like a franchise where the stench of tanking stuck to a franchise. That's the Buffalo save that's stuck to them for a long time. Um, But at the same time, if things just play out that way, I don't think Kent Hughes is going to be, you know, throwing chairs in his office. You know, it's it's not really something that's going to upset him that much, but it's, uh, you know, it's definitely, it might, it might upset Jeff Gorton more than, than Kent though. Yeah, it's perhaps. Jeff, Jeff Gorton is, I think, is uh, every every loss stings. <laughs> yeah, no, that's and that's fair. And listen, if you look at how quickly they kind of turn things around in New York, maybe he saw it going the same way here. I don't see how you could reasonably do that. But I mean, it's you know, there's no Artemi Panarin falling from the sky, and there's no Adam Fox falling from the sky in Montreal either. So it's there's it's a big difference between what happened in New York and what's going on here. But it's, you know, it's funny, like when you when you ask the question, who are we, you're likely to get, if you ask the players, the coaches and management, who are the Montreal Canadiens, I feel you're likely to get three 
pretty different responses. <laughs> Cornish yeah. on one hand, they're a really good team who could beat any team in the league. That's as of Monday. So I don't I just don't know how you can make that argument with a straight face just because you happen to play a couple of good games against a couple of good teams on two very separate occasions this season. Yeah. But who are you versus who can you be is it's two different questions, but it comes yeah. usually whenever I've asked that question or a, a ver, you know a, a variance of that question to a player or a coach, the answer is always based on how we think we can be, you know the, 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 how we project ourselves, how good we think we can be, how, how, how good we've been on certain occasions and we, we hold on to this as who we are. Rather than what's your what's your base what's your what's your standard what how have you been on average you know have you been yeah so that's also two things that are different because how you've been on average is clearly not as we mentioned earlier is not being used as the standard they're using the best version of themselves as the standard and right now those best versions of themselves instances. Are outliers and the standard mm -hmm. is is well below that and so uh, maybe they need to recalibrate a little bit because maybe they're they're after an unattainable standard and maybe that is what's leading to some of you know marty saying that playing good hockey games you know he mentions the four games prior to the vegas game as being like a subset or a sample of four good hockey games and and where they were playing good hockey and they lost two of the, the last two of those games Yeah, they uh, lost against uh, Vancouver and they lost against uh, Calgary. Those Calgary, are the two. Uh, you look at the Vancouver game. I really don't know why that's included in that group. Of, but anyhow, it's uh, – and so when I asked, I asked Marty after practice, you know, to what extent do you think not getting the result in those last two games of those four games you're talking about led to the substandard performances against two of the best teams in the league in Vegas and Boston? He said, yeah, it, it was a factor. And that's where the whole mental toughness thing came in, where they, they thought they played well, they didn't get the result, and it led to this, this, this. And it's just like so much of this Canadian season and so much of how Marty has described the team this year seems to me to be results-based. And Marty is the one screaming from the rooftops all the time that it can't be results-based. And so – They need to switch to a more process-based evaluation system and and stick to it because if they get bogged down in results, sorry to break it to you guys, but it's going to be a long year. <laughs> so you're, gonna, you're bound to be disappointed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, their um, last regulation win goes back to October 23rd. That's a long time two. ago. They have <laughs> two. So, so you want you want to look at results? Wins. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Two regulation wins in 18 games. That's a lot of games for two regulation wins. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Listen, 
Last week on Mailbag Monday, we took way too long to get to the mailbag. You can make the argument that we've done the same thing again this week. But we're going to get to the mailbag now because we have some interesting questions to pour over. Marc-Antoine, why don't you do the honors of picking the first one? Okay. Uh, Habs fan, 12-12-12-12-12, on our Twitter account, uh, asks, when will the three-goalie situation be resolved, and what is your prediction on how it gets resolved? Well, all right, I'll start with that. Um, I think the Canadians are in no rush to solve that situation. I think they want to solve it, but there's a couple of factors at play here. We mentioned, uh, you mentioned, Arpin, earlier that uh, Raphael Harvey-Pinard is injured. The fact mm-hmm. that he's been put on IR enabled the Canadians to call up a seventh defenseman, Jaden Struble, who's going to accompany the team uh, out west. So they've got the flexibility on their roster. They don't have that because of an injured player for the next little while. They don't have the immediate pressure of solving that three-goalie issue. There might be circumstances or conjunction at some point where um, where it needs to be solved, but they've been able to dodge that bullet so far. I think in the grand scheme of themes, things, they want to make sure that when they do move their a goalie, They will have a uh, certainty regarding Montembeau and his contract and B, that they're going to be in a position of strength in trying to deal for a goalie. Uh, they cannot they cannot just give away a goalie be- and make their own need to solve that issue a bigger issue than the need of another team for a goalie. They need to deal from a position of strength and as, as long as they don't have that, Well, they might as well wait because sending down Caden uh, uh, Primo clearly is, is off the table because they know that another team is going to claim him. His last couple of starts show that he's, he's, he's ready for NHL uh, duty. But I look at a team, for example, a team like, like New Jersey, who's been, having, who's been riding uh, Vitek Vanacek and Akuria Schmid For the begin- since the beginning of the season, they're a really good team. But mm-hmm. they've been giving up a lot of goals. And Schmid is a guy who's uh, who can still be sent to the minors and be waiver exempt. So if you look for teams that could use some help between the pipes, but they have a goalie that can be sent down without going through waivers, those teams might be the sort of teams that, look, uh, that could uh, pay some interest in, in, in Primo. So, it's actually uh, our uh, our timing is not great. I'm gonna okay. So we're recording this. It's currently 1:59 p.m. Eastern time. Um, yesterday, the Philadelphia Fires finally put Felix Sandstrom on waivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so their three goalie setup is about to be resolved quite imminently. So we're gonna get back. We're gonna get. Well, either, there's gonna be some clarity on the goalie market and the waivers and all that. So we'll get back to that. But, yeah, I agree with everything you said. And, and there is definitely no rush from the Canadian standpoint to get this resolved. And I think with each passing day, each of the goalies are just starting to accept and, and kind of fall into a rhythm that is different from what they're used to, but is becoming their new reality, and they're just accepting it. Um, Spoke to Caden Primo today, and, you know, it had been a while. Like today during practice, they had the second sheet of ice available to them in Brossard, and each goalie spent some individual time with Eric Temal on that second ice. 
And, you know, I spoke to Kate and Primo about it because I was wondering, does every KML have like a specified workout for each individual goalie? Or does he just go over there and work on the same things just with all three of them separately? Uh, Primo actually didn't know. He's like, but I think it's, he kind of said, I think it's the same. I don't, I don't really know, to be honest with you. I just know what he does with me. Uh, right. But he said sometimes it's based on the upcoming opponent and some of their tendencies. Sometimes it's based on stuff he saw that he feels needs to be cleaned up. So I'm still trying to get to the bottom. I'm going to talk to all three goalies eventually to see if they actually have personalized workouts. But um, main thing being that, you know, it, it kind of struck me that Eric Raymond under this current system has a far greater workload than he used to. Um, it's, it's one thing being a goalie coach, spending like 20 minutes with the goalies before practice and then basically sitting back and watching practice, just yeah. basically what he does. Now, during practice, he's got a lot more work to do. He's got a lot more planning to do for workouts and what have you. So, but Primo said at one point, um, when I mentioned the increased workload, he kind of laughed. He's like, well, that's kind of my fault. And he said, cause he said he texted him a little while ago to get out on the ice earlier because they didn't have that second sheet available to them or they were on the road and asked him to do more work than he was doing. So Primo's being proactive with it. And I think he's starting to get his head around the fact that, that, you know, he, there's certain things he needs to do to stay sharp and what, without taking away from the work that, that Jake Allen and Sam Montabo are doing, maybe just adding to Eric Raymond's workload, but it's, it's a new reality that he's, he's wrapping his head around. And the thing with the three goalies also, it's, yeah, the, the training's different. The, the workload in terms of games played is different, but it's not broken. I mean, if there's been one it's position not. where Canadians have had success, have been, uh, have been trustworthy of their players, it's, it's between, uh, it's in the net. The three yeah. guys have done their part. So it's not, it's not a question necessarily saying, well, if it's not broken, why fix it? There's there's still something I think that longer term needs to be fixed, but it I think that each of those three goalies has made the most out of that situation. Primo is needs to be uh, patient just a little bit more, but he's really knocking at the door. It's within grasp whether mm. he, he's traded to another team that will make him their number two goalie, or it's in Montreal where he finally finds his niche. I think that he he, he sees. The horizon is not so far away anymore. I think that there's, there's, there's an NHL future for him now. And I think that's a very positive uh, development for him. Now, I think that how the situation is going to be resolved between what the Canadians would like to do and who's going to draw some interest on the market, it's two different things. Because even if the Canadians would say, well, in our, in our minds, finding the right the right contract for Montembeau and being able to keep a younger goalie would be the ideal thing for us. There might other teams might look at Jake Allen and say, you know what, this is not the guy that we want. So uh, it's, it's, it's going to be until they find that, that arrangement. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I find it unlikely that this will all be resolved, but that's where the negotiations with Montembeau will come into play. Because if, for example, Montembeau's agents say, okay, well, we want so much money for him and a deal cannot be struck. Then if, then he becomes a, a, a guy who could potentially help a team just down the stretch because it'd be a UFA to be goalie. So unless there's, yeah, it'd, you know, be it could be, it'd be a rental. And then 
you know, what sort of value would that would that generate for the Canadians to move, you know, a, a, a mid 20s or late 20s guys who's a rental? Uh, I'm not sure of the return that they would get for him. No, and it's, I mean, I think they would rather. I think they would be more inclined, unless the return is is considerable or or fair at least, they would be more inclined to wait it out and try and sign him after the season. I mean, I think that's mm -hmm. that's because I think there's a recognition, at least on the Canadians' part, that this might take a while for them to come to terms. And and the one thing the Canadians know is that Sam Altamo wants to stay in Montreal. He doesn't want to stay in Montreal at all costs. He's not going to leave millions of dollars on the table, but he wants to stay in Montreal. So that's that's. But it's true that I think that that is the biggest sticking point because the Canadians, the Canadians are fearful of a scenario where they lose Caden Primo for nothing or trade him for very little, which frankly, I mean, I don't, I don't think they could expect much of a return for Caden Primo at this point if they traded him and then also lose Sam Montembeau to free agency afterwards. No, so no, they can do that. That's the scenario that they are trying to, Avoid. And while you were talking, well, goalie Felix Sandstrom has cleared waivers and he's going to report to Lehigh Valley in the American League. So there you go. There you uh, go. So, <laughs> all right. Second... Primo, maybe Caden Primo would have a chance to get through waivers. Who knows? Maybe, maybe. Um, yeah. All right. JJ Bowerman is asking us can you give any insight on why Martin Saint Louis only prefers certain players playing their off wing? I'll let you go first on that. I think the answer is pretty simple. I think you'd prefer to have all players playing on their off wing. It's just that some players have just displayed an inability to do so. I think Brendan Gallagher is an example of that. Yola Armia, we've seen play on the left side under Marty, which he never did before, uh, was always considered a right winger through and through. Uh, Josh Anderson's a guy who pretty much plays on the right wing almost exclusively, although Saturday night was an exception. But The preference would be that if a player can do it, you know, we've seen Uri Slavkovsky is more effective on the right side. Um, Cole Caulfield has consistently played on the left side since Marty came in and, and generally has done well with it. So it is a preference of Marty's. It, there's just certain players who have shown either through their play or have expressed as much to Marty that they, they're uncomfortable on their offside. And so those players get to stay on their, on their natural side or their strong side, if you will. Uh, but the preference is definitely for, for any forward to play on his off wing. Any winger, I should say, to play on his off wing. Yeah. St. Louis, after a game the other night, said uh, this is a this is a one-timers league more and more. And it's not about necessarily the one-timers that you see in the circle on power plays, but it's just how quickly can you release the puck. You get the puck and you just you shoot it right away. You know, it's just yeah. how quickly can can you shoot it. And that's obviously one of the main advantages of playing a forward and then they're off wing. You, they can, they can shoot it quickly. So, mm -hmm. it, I mean, regarding Anderson, you know, you said Anderson has been more comfortable on his, on the right side, his natural side, but I, I picture him very often attacking by himself, carrying the puck in one of those like individual rushes that, that he used to do a lot more of under Dominique Cham than, Then under uh, Martin Saint Louis, who's trying to diversify his game, but when he does those rushes, he does them a lot more from the left side and then cutting to the net uh, rather than 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 from the right side. But 
So yeah, so he does it more often from the left than from the right. But generally speaking, the rest of his game definitely has been more comfortable staying on his natural side. Yeah. Um, okay. Go to, uh, uh, here I got a I got one from uh, from Matt Matt yeah. Rosen who sent a, sent in an email. It's a very long email. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically this is the crux of it. Um, I had a question that stemmed from a conversation you both had this summer about the Canadians' amateur scouting methodology. I can't remember the exact wording, but you made the point that the Canadians go incredibly in-depth on the prospects they draft, even going so far as to interview their high school teachers. Mm -hmm. The question that came to mind when I heard this was, has there been any validation that this matters? Have the Habs ever gone back and looked at whether this process actually works better than just focusing on how someone has produced in their draft year? Is it possible that they're massively overthinking this? He goes on to state a bunch of examples. Obviously, the Mitchkov running back debate enters into it, but um, I would say that this is generally how all teams approach the draft. That no team, I guess, d different teams weight them differently, weight production a different amount than sort of the intangible, some of the character issues that you can learn investigating. Uh, deeper into a player's background, but every team in the NHL goes deep on a player's background. You have to, you have to, it's just, I would say every team in the NHL ingests much of the same information. It's just how you weight that information, different categories of information uh, that differs from team to team. So, yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't think, you know, I think this is a fair question because, you know, Uri Slavkovsky did not produce in his draft year and the Canadians took him anyway, based on a relatively small sample of international play. Um, and that's the main criticism they get for that pick. And that's fair. Uh, you know, you look at other players in their draft year playing in Liga, which is a historically, traditionally a very defensive type of league, but... Barkov, Laine, some of the other players who were drafted high out of Liga put up better numbers. Um, actually, the ones who put up the lowest numbers were both drafted by the Canadians, were Jesperi Kakiemi and and uh, and Uri Slavkovsky. So, but those are two different administrations, two different kind of philosophies. The one one common thread there being Martin Lapointe, but uh, I don't know. I, I don't think the Canadians are unique in diving deep on prospects. They might weight it differently than other teams, and maybe they put too much weight on some of the off-ice stuff that they learn about a player, some of the character things. Uh, but I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think a lot of their scouting is is based primarily on eye test, frankly, and, and viewings and and what they see in certain situations, situations of adversity. Um, in Slavkovsky's case, it was the grandeur of the stage that he performed under that really resonated with the Canadians. Yes, it was a small sample, but the fact that he played his best at the Olympics and played his, you know, played at the World Championships, all these big stage events and had historic production levels for a player his age is what resonated with them, rightly or wrongly. That's what they looked at. It wasn't the character stuff. It wasn't their investigations of him off the ice, even though that was played a part, but the biggest factor was that it was productive it was performance based and i think in Rhinebacker's case very similar the more they saw him the more they liked him the more they saw him play in games in heightening importance the more they saw him play 
with the level of competition that he was facing in the Swiss League, the more they liked him. The character stuff, as far as I could tell, the stuff, the investigations on on his background and his character, I think took took a back seat to to watching him play and liking what they saw. Yeah, well, to me, this is those things are not mutually exclusive. It's all about making sure that no stone is left unturned, because everybody can you can everybody sees the production, they can assess also. Every team will assess the context in which that production happened. You know, what's, uh, what is the environment around the player favorable, less favorable? How did he compensate or react to the fact, to those parameters, to those circumstances? I think those are things that are, that, that are primary when it comes to player evaluation. But when, uh-huh. you know, Ma- Matthew mentions the example of going back to interview high school teachers, it's, it's, it might seem like it's, it's far-fetched or it's not needed, but what you under, what they want to know by doing that stuff is based on the, the performances that we see now, we can determine how good he is now. But you know how they say that how the GM and everybody says, well, it's not about how good he is at 18. It's how good he's going to be at 22 or 23. Well, the projection that they establish from 20 from 18 to 22 23 is how how good is he at getting better how good of a student is he how focused and dedicated to his craft is he especially when you're a kid and you let your talent speak it's not necessarily work all the time that's going to define who you are as a player it's your natural uh or your uh, your your natural domination versus your peers. But as you climb up the ranks, this rem- this becomes less and less the case. And it's how do you work? How much attention do you pay at getting better and at um, absorbing the information you're giving and making the changes, making the improvements quickly after you've absorbed that information? And where do you get the knowledge of how a, a kid does that? It's by asking, seeing through the the history as far back as you can go to understand, has he been disciplined and interested at getting better or is he just letting his talent talk? So that's Mm -hmm. why it's not mutually exclusive because on one hand, you've got the pure expression of how good the kid is now, but going through his background helps you understand or at least reduce the margin of error in your projection how, how good he can become. Right. Okay, let's move on to another one. This is a this is kind of topical. This comes from uh, from a longtime listener, Jaydeep. Who who? Has... I don't think it's the same Jaydeep. Is it? Oh, maybe uh, not. Is it? I don't know because the, the Jaydeep Anyhow. that we know is from Victoria, BC, and this one seems to be. Well, he just and he, he said no, but he said uh, he's moved from Victoria to Calgary. I think he mentioned that in the email. So anyway. Oh, there you go. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, then it's, right. it's our good it's old JD. It's, it's good old JD. So he has a yeah. question that that's kind of piggybacking on the uh, on the recent global series where the Leafs uh, had a love in in Sweden with William Nylander. And so um, <laughs> uh, with the Leafs on a successful brand building exercise abroad in Sweden, I was wondering if you thought the Habs should embark on a similar exercise and whether this is long overdue. Uh, based on the excitement of Leafs media in recent days, it sounds like this was a big win for the team and its marketing efforts. While the continue, Canadians continue to have a large fan base, uh, as seen by the side of the Tricolor in visiting arenas, 
It feels like the special status that the team had historically ha- has slipped. Rather than a glamorous, world-famous team, we are now just one of 32 franchises with our last Stanley Cup coming over 30 years ago in grainy standard definition. The Vegas Golden Knights arguably have more brand cachet than our grandfather's dusty <laughs> Canadians. Um, so, first off, uh, Gary Bettman was in Montreal last season um, just kind of randomly. He sort of does that sometimes, just pops up at a rink and does a media availability for no particular reason. This was one of those times. And he threw out the idea, the notion of the Canadians playing in Paris at some point in the near future. Now, if you know Gary Bettman at all, uh, he doesn't just bounce things randomly. He, he wouldn't throw that randomly out into the Montreal media space um, without it having some basis in truth. I, 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 I firmly believe uh, Bettman would not suggest that as a possibility if it wasn't something that can, the, the league was already looking at. So, um, you well, know, I, I mentioned- can confirm, I can confirm mm-hmm. that that's something that the Canadians have been working on for yeah. next fall. If, right. Is it going to happen? Not sure yet, but they've been working on this. Yeah. So that's in it, Paris exactly. specifically. So, and, and they were, they were working on it at the time that Gary Bettman said that is, is my point is, is so, mm-hmm. Uh, Jaydeep mentioned Paris or London as natural fits. Paris is obviously the natural fit uh, for the Canadians. Uh, the, the NHL has not played a game in Paris. This would be a perfect opportunity for them to do so. I don't know if they would do it. You know, the, the problem with Paris is that there's no there's no French star uh, from France, I should say, um, to market the game around the way that. Nylander, Joel Eriksson, uh, there was a number of Swedish players that they sort of picked teams that had a, a strongish Swedish presence to play in Sweden. Uh, you couldn't really do the same, but I could see them having like kind of a combined, you know, maybe like a Paris Cologne kind of mishmash global series where you have like a couple of venues, uh, get Stutzel over there, get Dreisaitl over there. You know, use Paris. I mean, that's just me spitballing. I haven't heard anything to that effect, but I think Germany is also on the radar to host some global series games. And it would make a whole lot of sense to me to have a joint sort of German French collaboration with the Canadians involved, obviously, in the games in Paris. Yeah, well, even if France is in Europe, I would find the, Can- the, the National Hockey League going to France a little bit closer to going to Australia rather than yeah. going to Sweden because the state of hockey in France, I mean, it's, it's been really difficult for the league Magnus to really steer a lot of interest and establish breaking new grounds. Uh, whereas Sweden, I mean, is a, is a hotbed for hockey and Germany, as you just pointed out, Germany is an emerging market when it comes to hockey, mm-hmm. but they've been producing high end talent in a, in, yeah. at, at a rate that's, That's really, you know, you can you cannot ignore that. Where it's uh-huh. not at all this the, the the situation with France. I mean, right now there are two French players in the whole of National Hockey League. There's Alexandre Texier and good old Pierre Edouard Belmar, who's 96 years old. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Sorry, no, Pierre no, Pierre Edouard is it's been c'est une blague, Pierre Edouard, c'est but, une blague. No, honestly, he's, he's thoughts been thoughts and feelings do not reflect the feelings of the podcast. <laughs> They are his independent it. thoughts and, and opinions. Just gonna no, put no, that disclaimer not... out there for the next time That's we right. run into Pierre Edouard. Yeah. 
That's right. No, he's 38 years old and he's, uh, he's, uh, he's still kicking. He's, he's a highly respected veteran in the team, in the league. And, mm-hmm. you know, teams that go, that do well tend to call for his services after. He's never been yeah, yeah. right. Absolutely. Right now he plays for Seattle and, and, has, and, and has a hell of a story. I mean, his backstory is great and his, his upbringing yeah. and everything. So anyhow. Yeah, all that. But my, all that to so say, my sorry, Pierre Edouard Belmont. Yeah, but they don't have a dry sider. They don't have a Moritz sider. They don't have the 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 Reichels, etc. So mm-hmm. uh, or Peterka. Uh, so Stutzler. in that sense, it, it would be Stutzler. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if the Canadians were to go there, it would probably help. You know, creating a connection between you know the French aspect of Montreal and, and, and being in France, but. There's a lot of groundwork to do to really uh, ignite the entrance, uh, interest of, of French people towards hockey. I think it can be done, but they're, they're getting only pennies in terms of, uh, of uh, you know, fundings. And, and mm-hmm. they, they've had a, a hard time attracting also talent that is, you know, guys that are obviously not good enough to be in the NHL, but... When you choose to go, you know, when you're stuck in the AHL or in the ECHL and you say, okay, it's time for me to have a, a new beginning, you turn to Europe. Well, obviously, KHL, is it used to be the prime destination, but Switzerland is probably the, the top, uh, top of the list. After that, mm-hmm. you look at Sweden, you look at Finland, you look at Germany, and France goes way down the list. So, yeah, but that's, I mean, that would be kind of the point, you know, I mean, that's why your initial analogy with Australia is apt, but the added value, what's not added, it was the same value in Australia is the added value. If if you pick the Canadians and say another team with a strong Quebecois or French Canadian presence on it, um, at least being able to go and speak the language and and appear on the news and go on talk shows and do do sort of a media circuit in France and be able to do so in French um would help right would help it, would it, help for sure. pump up the game sure. and it, it would help grow you know make this more of an event than it otherwise would and so uh but listen it's it's to answer the question yes the canadians need to be in one of these high profile international events they do mm-hmm. uh they're pursuing it uh the league wants it to happen it's 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 so it's not a this is not a, a non-issue it's it's definitely front burner i think for both the league and the canadians One more question, Arpin, maybe? Uh, we'll do one more, yeah. Around. And then I got to go to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, sounds good. Um, listen, we uh, – okay, well, we had a question earlier about uh, about uh, drafting and, and looking into criteria to develop uh, – to to, uh, to draft some, some players. There's a question about development here from Alex, who says, I'm wondering if you could provide your thoughts on the current debate happening around Habland – Uh, about development and letting players stew for a year in Europe, for example, Slavkovsky, and how much that truly makes a difference. Joel Armia stayed in Finland two extra years in his, after his draft year, and we all know it did nothing for his development. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Uh, I can't yeah. help but think people are getting caught up in the minutia of where development happens, AHL versus NHL, for example, which, in my opinion, is irrelevant. So uh, it's... It's interesting because I, I, I want to pick up on what you were saying about Slav earlier uh, and how he was drafted based on what he what he did in the international level rather than how he played in Liga in Finland. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
But one of the reasons why the Canadians did not want him to go back there is they felt as though the team that he was um, that he was playing for, Turku, was not the right environment for him to develop. And they thought, in some cases, it might be relevant to bring the player to send the player back in Europe, but in other cases, depending on you know his situation over there, it's better for us to keep him close to us. That's the decision they made with Slavkovsky. With mm-hmm. Reinbacker, they looked at the, the the organization in Kloten and said, "We we know the people in Kloten. We trust them. We think he's in a good environment. So let's uh, let's have Reinbacker go back there for a season. And next thing you know, um, uh, less than a, two months with <laughs> within the start of the season, Jerry Fleming gets fired by Kloten. So it's it might be a good environment. It was not good enough for the for the managers yeah. over there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's yeah. That's definitely one that." So far, has backfired. Listen, it's it's it's, it's early. Um, they did have a certain. There were a lot of people in the organization. I wrote a story earlier with all the connections that Jerry Fleming has worked with JF Hull. Uh, the list goes on and on. It's anyhow. So they did. They were there were a lot of people within the organization who felt comfortable and were happy that Jerry Fleming was in charge there. Obviously, he's not anymore. Reinbacker's start to the year has been riddled with injury and, and sort of inconsistent play. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a, I think it goes to show to what extent it's, it's a bit of a crapshoot. You know, I mean, it's like, it's, you think that the kid has a good environment. Um, you know, another guy I think of is, uh, is Oliver Kapanen, who doesn't really show up on the, on the, on the radar much. Um, you know, he was, uh, you know, a pretty high draft pick, but it's, he's been forgotten about and, and, you know, he's showing some pretty interesting things uh, playing in Finland this year. And so Mm -hmm. it's, it's, I think it's really dependent on which player. I mean, I always think, I always kind of think of Mikko Rantanen, which is sort of the example that comes up a lot when discussing why didn't Slavkovsky play in the AHL last year. Because Mikko Rantanen just after being drafted came to North America played his nine games in Colorado and, and spent the rest of the year uh, in the AHL uh, with San Antonio Rampage, got 60 points in 52 games, um, and that was it. Mm-hmm. From that point on, he was an NHL player and scored 20 goals his rookie year and has never looked back. So there are different, there are different paths for different players. It's, it's, you know, when you think of Slavkovsky's path is the fact that he had one unproductive half season in the NHL and is in his draft plus one year signs that he's a bus. No. Um, other players have had similarly poor results in their first season. He didn't even get to finish his first season. Um, but it, this notion that it, I, I guess the answer is that there is no one size fits all answer to this question. It's, I know that's kind of a lame answer, but for some players, it's better to stay in Europe and, and stew a little bit or marinate. Um, for others, it's not. It's It really depends. Jesse Ulonen is a guy who spent a couple of years in Finland after being drafted, came over, played a couple of years in the AHL. I think he spent one year actually Ar- in Finland. Arturi Lekanen stayed two years after his draft right. uh, in Finland too and actually did Finland. No, in, in Sweden. Sweden. In, in Sweden. Sweden. And actually, yeah. that helped him immensely. I mean, playing... Uh, playing in Gothenburg, you know, he's talked about it a lot, how, how that taught him they have a more NHL-style program 
there uh, with uh, Forlunda, Forlunda, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So he uh, and he won a championship there. He learned a lot about transitioning from more of a European style to an NHL style. And anyone who looks at Arturi Lekkonen, I mean, that guy is the epitome of an NHL style forward. Um, learned a lot of that in Gothenburg, so it benefited him a great deal. So for some players, it does. For others, it's better to get them on North American ice and into an actual North American system as quickly as possible. Um, I think, you know, I think... Uh, so I think one thing that's in the discourse around the development of prospects around the Canadians is... There seems that to be they do it the notion. wrong way. <laughs> well, no, but there seems that there is a wrong way, or that there is a right way, and that it's 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 true to everyone. You know that it, it has to be this way. If you don't do it this way, it's wrong, and if you do it this way, it's right, and it's guaranteed success versus guaranteed failure. It's not, you know, it's, it's not all absolutes. You know, only only the Sith. Only the Sith talks in absolutes. That's my little Star Wars reference, but it's 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 that's it. It's not all absolutes. It's not, and it's not all going to be resolved within one or two years. It's just not reality, you know. I mean, again, the notion of who's going to be the best at twenty two or twenty three. Look at it's not he's he's not lighting the world on fire, but I think everyone should look at Jesperi Kotkaniemi right now and what he's doing with Carolina at the age of twenty two, and say okay. He's not the superstar that he's not a superstar. And I don't think anyone ever really projected him to be a superstar, but he's a very highly effective player on a very good team who's leading that team in scoring right now. He's, he's, he's becoming the player the Canadians saw in him when they took him number three. Is he ever going to equal Brady Kachuk? Obviously not, but he, he is reaching sort of fruition at this age and, and exposing him to the expectations in the NHL and in Montreal in particular at a very young age in hindsight was probably a mistake, but given time, given a change of environment, given a, a, a definite lessening of scrutiny in Carolina and just giving, being given an organization that still invested a lot in him. Listen, they went out, they made that offer sheet, they gave him a big contract, so it's not as if there's no pressure to perform there, but it's obviously a different, more nurturing environment than he had in Montreal, particularly under Mark Bergevay, who stuck his neck out tra dra drafting him at number three and made it clear uh, on numerous occasions that, that he kind of regretted doing that. So there's... You gotta, you gotta look at that case and be like, okay, maybe what I thought was obvious when the kid was 19 or 20 isn't all that obvious as, after all. And, and it's a good sort of case study to look at. And, and I don't know if, listen, I don't know if Kotkaniemi well, is going to lead the team in scoring. Like he probably won't. Al has been injured a little bit, but there's, there's definitely something there that I think there's a lesson there to be drawn in terms of how you look at these kids and how you look at development curves and, and, and finished products. I'll give you another name, Quinton Byfield. You're about to leave for LA. Well, yeah. Quinton Byfield, second pick overall in 2020, didn't exactly light the world on fire in his first two seasons. He had five goals and 10 uh, points in his first uh, 40 games in 21-22. He bounced between NHL and AHL, and now he's mm -hmm. in his you know third real uh, season with the Kings, and he's finally taking off. He's 21 yeah. years old, and he's got 14 points in 16 games. He's been converted to uh, – I mean, he's a full-time winger, and he's getting the job done now. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he's and the commonality – But 
It's and the not something that between happened. Him, well, the commonality between him and Slav is that they're they're bigger guys. And even Kakanyemi to some extent, but really him and Slav is that they're bigger guys. It takes bigger guys longer sometimes to figure out how best to use that combination of size and skill and how that translates to the NHL. That's it. So, uh, well, we'll see for Reinbacker if uh, if they'll still judge at the end of the season that Cloten's the right place for him. I expect uh, I expect him to to be whether in Montreal or in Laval next year. And you mentioned Oliver Kapanen. That's another guy that uh, should be in Laval next season. Uh, so thanks for sending us your questions. Uh, so I remind you that you can reach us uh, on Twitter at Basu and Godin. That's our handle. Or by email at Basu and Godin at gmail.com. Uh, Arpin, you're leaving for California. I am not, but we're going to nonetheless, despite the time difference, talk to each other on Friday. Uh, mm. So enjoy California. And uh, everybody, well, thanks for listening to The Notebook and uh, hope you enjoy it. Thank you. And don't forget to subscribe either on any of your podcast platforms or on YouTube. Talk to you Friday. Yeah. 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 And write us a, write a message, write a little <laughs> comment also. That's good. We like that. <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. All right. Bye.